Disney Channel or movies. So that's <laughs> it's one thing you can't do. All right. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting uh, this morning, I want to especially welcome you, as Leah did earlier in, in Highland. Uh, thanks for coming today to one of our gatherings. We are right now in a series, a sermon series in the book of Acts, and it's a, one of the longer books of really the whole Bible, but the New Testament especially, the fifth book in. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles and you want to follow along kind of via that, that way, that'd be great, uh, or on the phone app you've got. We're in Acts 11 today, uh, 19 to 30. So, um, but just to catch you guys up to speed on where we've been a little bit, at least chronologically, at this point in the narrative, and I mean by narrative, I mean the narrative of Acts, the biblical story of Acts, but also the whole Bible, and since Christ was born, really. At this point in Acts, Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So the, a couple of things we've seen actually in Acts kind of recounted. So Luke's the author writing, writing about this, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke as well. Acts is kind of a second volume to the Gospel of Luke, and so there's some kind of uh, correspondence there at the end, some overlap. He's clearly writing a two-volume account about the, the man Christ, the God-man Jesus, and and what he said, what he did, how he healed, how he taught, all this stuff. Everything from his birth all the way through his baptism especially, but then up through his three years of ministry before his death and resurrection. And that's how the gospel accounts climax. And so Acts then picks up with that, saying Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he was raised, and now he's ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit of God has been sent to fill the hearts, bodies, and souls of those he's saving. All right, and here's the key though. The first Christians were entirely Jewish. This is happening in Jerusalem to Jewish, now Jewish Christians. But now in Acts, we're starting to see how the gospel is spreading further outside Jerusalem and the province Judea, today to a place called Antioch. This is a really strategic, but also just kind of a basic, uh, basically important thing to understand about Acts, this, this name of this city, essentially, uh, which will be kind of a sending pad for Paul later uh, on his missionary journey. So it'll come later in the book. But Saul, the guy who's also called Paul, a lot of you guys know about him. We, we read about him in Acts 9. He's going to come up today too. This becomes kind of a sending city of sorts for him. So we'll hear more about it. But this is the first time it comes up. It's kind of a cool, cool passage. So today we're going to talk about this, the, the grace of God at Antioch. So what is Antioch and, and how the grace of God has really come to this city and and, and what that means. And, and as we do that, so we'll talk about the history of this happening, as we do it, more so the theological implications of it happening. And then as we go further, how exactly it's being recorded in the Bible as well, which tells us a ton about Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, and the importance of church life and community. And so, and, and in a sense, get used to that because that's going to be a, a massive kind of a trifecta of things that we'll keep seeing in the book of Acts. So who is Jesus? What's the gospel? And then what it means to truly be a Christian and the importance of church life, church planting, starting new churches, and church community. So we'll talk some about this today, but it'll be a, a hugely repeated and emphasized thing that the author, Luke, is, and God really is doing through him, uh, but for the sake of us and our learning and our edification and our maturing as Christians. Those of you who are not Christians, uh, as well, to learn what it actually means, what the gospel actually is, and what church actually is, and, and what community, how important that is for, for Christians to be relational uh, people, because our God is. All right, so today we're in Acts 11, 19 to 30. We're going to read the first uh, five or six verses here to start through 26, and then we'll, we'll read the second part. They, they are kind of standalone uh, chunks, but they do relate, and I'll connect them a little bit later on, but we'll, we'll just, for clarity's sake, you'll, we'll start with the first uh, six or seven verses here, and, and we'll start in verse 19. So follow along on screen if you'd like, and um, 
and then we will come back here and, and talk about it. All right? Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. All right, so let's uh, go back to verse 19 for a second here. And I want to call you back to something we talked about in, really it was the the whole of chapter 7, really, and into chapter 6, because we met Stephen there in chapter 6. But Stephen's speech in chapter 7, the end of 7, he's martyred. Stephen's one of the first Jewish Christians. He gets that long speech in chapter 7. He's the first Christian martyr, and in 8, we see this uh, same theme here as well. Uh, But it was clear there, as it is here, that his death, Stephen's death, ignited a broader persecution of Christians in that area. That for some, and for many actually, forced them out of the city back to their hometowns, which in turn sent the gospel with them to those places, one of those places being Antioch. And so just a map here for your geographical bearings. So Jerusalem and Judea there, the Judea is the greater province. Jerusalem, you can, you can I hopefully see, it's not a great picture there, but on the very bottom. And then ignore those brown arrows. This is uh, kind of Saul's earlier uh, travels. This is what this map is for, but kind of ignore those for now. But Tarsus is at the top there. You can see up here. And this big red circle is just highlighting Antioch. So you can kind of see how far north the gospel has gotten pretty quickly. And this is not a Jewish area. There are, there are Jews here because at this point in history, the Jews have been scattered pretty much everywhere in the Roman Empire. And so when it says earlier that the gospel is being preached to Jews in that city, that's how it started. But then it says, but there were some who preached the gospel to the, the non-Jews of, of the city, the Hellenists, who were there as well. And then they received the gospel and received the word of the Lord, received the grace of God, and that's when Barnabas is, is sent. And so what I want to do to start here is... Um, I want to point out, and I just said this, but I want to go back and highlight this because Acts is highlighting this. Luke's highlighting this, the author. God is highlighting this theme, and some of you are brand new to this, and so I want to make sure it's clear that again in Acts, so going back to Acts 7 with Stephen and 8 with Stephen and what we saw happen there, again in Acts we're seeing this theme of persecution of Jesus' people, so the persecution and, and, and imprisoning and murdering and slaughtering and, and tearing families apart of Christians that that leads to and precedes the salvation of others. The persecution of the church, the persecution, the slaughtering of Christians leads to and precedes the salvation of other people. And that's why he highlights this. It's not just that the gospel got here, it's the how. Stephen's death enabled this kind of forcing out of Jewish Christians from the Jerusalem center to other areas. And with them came the gospel that they cherished, that they couldn't help but talk about. Jesus is alive. To the point where it's so important to see that if Stephen wasn't martyred, if he, it, it brings into question whether or not the gospel would have gone anywhere, or at least at the speed at which it did. All right, so we've seen it play out 
time and time again, really already in Acts, we'll keep seeing it, narratively, historically, but as we've already noted in this series, the deeper meaning also behind the why this happens at all and what gospel principle we see in it, and that is this. Christ himself, his persecution, his spilt blood led to our salvation, right? His martyrdom, which wasn't really a martyrdom because he was planning it. He, he desired it. It was part of God's planning to bring salvation to the, to the nations, as we're seeing, as we know. But it was his martyrdom, his death, his spilt blood that led to our salvation. And now the idea linking it with Stephen and this idea in Acts, again, Acts 8, but then Acts 11 here as well. The idea with Stephen, the related idea is it continues to happen through Christian persecution. Not in the same exact way, of course, but a related way that flows like a river from the source, the source being Jesus' sufferings. So when Christians spill their blood and they are the body of Christ in a shadowy, reflective kind of way, they live out the gospel. I mean, almost literally, not quite literally, but it's about as good as you can get. Jesus' body is spilling blood every day around the world again by way of Christians, by way of the church. And so it shouldn't shock us when we see that that's, even though that's a horrific, terrible thing, God brings an immense good from it. Just like he brought good from his son's death, so does, so does he bring good from his child's death, which is the church now, his, his new son's death in a sense, or another one of his, his adopted son's death. That's us, sons and daughters of, of the king. Many of you likely heard last week about the Sri Lankan churches. Did you guys hear about this last Easter? I made the news on a pretty decent level. Um, but the Sri Lankan churches that were bombed on Easter Sunday, if you didn't, that happened in, in Sri Lanka. It was actually, I don't know if it was right. It wouldn't have been right where we were meeting because it's a different time, but I forget what time of day it would have been here. But it happened on Easter Sunday. They were going to church to worship Jesus, and, and they were killed. Um, and it killed hundreds. It's actually the, the, the biggest, I think we were saying, Spence, was it the biggest or one of the biggest uh, terrorist attacks since 9-11? I think it was either the biggest or one of the, the top, like, two or three since uh, 9-11. So, um, anyways, you guys hear about this? Uh, if you didn't, that happened. So, uh, I saw this picture uh, that, that was circulating. You guys may have seen this too, but this picture of a porcelain, I, I think it's porcelain. I don't know what it is. I think it's porcelain. I'll say it's porcelain. It looks porcelain. Uh, but porcelain figure of Jesus in one of the churches that still had, this is a bad picture, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of dim. But see that splatter on it, that kind of uh, splattery pattern? That's the blood of many of the Christians splattered on the walls still and right across the body of Jesus. Did you guys see this picture circulating at all? It was in CT. I don't know if some of the bigger news outlets picked it up or not, but um, that's what that is. And, and it's like my, my brain all week, I mean, this is like the worst picture ever in one sense, and yet it's like, but my brain's been on symbolic overload, like trying to like analyze this and think, oh my gosh, it sends so many cool images at the same time and underlines so many cool truths, most of which I can't talk about today. Uh, we'll get to a couple. But actually, this, by the way, quick digression, this is much more of a travesty than Notre Dame. Much more. Or should be for Christians. And yet the outcry over Notre Dame seemed to be much higher even from many Christians. But in reality, God cares much more about the spilt blood of his spiritual temple, being the church, spiritual temple, dwelling place, being gathered Christians, than he does Gothic architecture. And I'm not trying to pit the physical against the spiritual here. I've been in Notre Dame. It was the hardest thing, one of the harder things that week to hear, and it was like incredibly mournful and just terrible that it was burning down. 
I've been there. Uh, and yet, uh, for us, with the worldview that we have, speaking to those of you who are Christians here, when we think about where God dwells, right, and what his building truly is, it's not brick and mortar, uh, as great as that can be. And, and God, care, God, as Christians, we believe in a God that cares about the physical too, right? It's not pitting, pitting one against the other. God cares about the physical and the spiritual, but there's a clear hierarchy of importance here. Gathered Christians are his temple. We are his city. Do we believe this? Christians are his Israel. Christians are his dwelling place. Christians are his tabernacle or his temple, not buildings. All right, but that's a big digression. But back to Acts 11. With this image in mind and with Stephen in mind, one Christian reporter that I read on Sri Lanka linked to Tertullian, who was a late 2nd century, early 3rd century church father who said, who said this, it's in context, a greater context, he writes this in, in his, one of his theological works that we still, we still have. Uh, but he writes this, this sentence, and that is, the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the Christians, is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, which basically is saying, the blood of Christians ends up producing more Christians. The blood of Christians ends up producing more Christians. All right? It's mysterious how it plays out, but sometimes the worst of things happening to Christians, their deaths, precedes the best of things happening in the lives of others. That's just what we're seeing in Acts and what we're seeing play out in history. You know, it's to the point where we haven't seen like the ramifications yet of Sri Lanka, but to the point where we should almost expect great revival to happen now in Sri Lanka now after this attack because Christian blood was spilt. Maybe even some of those terrorists being the ones who become Christians now. And maybe even becoming some of the biggest advocates for the faith that the region has ever seen. Wouldn't that be amazing? And where have we seen this in Acts? What terrorist became a Christian? What Christian murderer became a Christian? Saul, right? It happens. Do we believe it's going to continue to happen? That's a good question for us, right? I think that's a great way to pray, but also that we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. We should have a category for God using Christian blood to bring about great good because the center of our faith is God using blood to bring about good, the blood of his son. If we, if we believe anything as Christians, it's that, right? So it's going to spell out, it's going to spell out further. So again, for clarity here, guys, like Jesus' blood saved us from our sin, so does the blood of Jesus' bride and body many times accompany a great moving of the Spirit in a, particular, in a particular area. They are connected mysteriously. The second thing I want to talk about today is, from this first section anyway, is Barnabas. A really cool figure. We've, we've met him before in the book already. He's named Son of Encouragement earlier. I don't think that comes up in this passage, but earlier... Son of encouragement comes up. That's what, kind of what his name means, but it's sort of a mantra for him as well. And others are seeing this in him, which is a great kind of tagline. If you're going to have a tagline, that's a great one. Uh, or kind of a, 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 or yeah, a tagline. So, but anyway, Barnabas is again here at work, and it fits here because clearly in Antioch, he's again at work encouraging the church, right? He's a man of encouragement in an upbuilding of, of the community there. A couple things with him. First, broadly it says, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So remember, he's, he's not from there, but he goes there 
when the church in Jerusalem hears that people are believing the gospel, Jews and non-Jews in Antioch, and they're, they're glad over that. They're happy over that, and Barnabas is sent to check it out. And then it says, for a whole year, they, so when Saul comes with him later, he goes and gets Saul from Tarsus, comes back, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. So one thing we're seeing here right off the cuff, and this is a little more of kind of a, a human or more horizontal application for the church, Barnabas provides that. There's more we'll come to later on, but we'll start with this, is we see this very instinctual value that the church had of church. And I put the latter church in quotes just to mean that church meaning gathering and doing life together. So the church, Christians, people of the Christian faith and Christian world, the people have converted and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he died first for their sins. Those people have this instinctual value and Barnabas is this face to it, but the whole city is. But Barnabas is a face to it that the church had of church. In other words, this is not just conversionism. The idea that conversion is all that matters. But nor is it denying it either. It's not denying revivalism or conversionism either. But it was taking seriously the call to convert or believe the gospel, but then to grow in that gospel, right? Otherwise, this makes no sense. When Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad at the grace of God's work in that city. That just means he's seen that clearly these are genuine conversions. The grace of God went before him, before the Jerusalem Christians and was doing things almost in spite of them, in a way. The gospel had gotten there without their permission, as if God needed it, right? But it just got there and they were glad. But then he stayed. He didn't pick up his gospel tracks and go to the next city. He stayed, went to get Paul and thought, this is a big deal and it's so important. We're going to go back and spend time with these people to teach them, to train them, to think biblically, to live biblically, and to think biblically, and some of them to lead. But teaching the Bible is a, a huge component to this, as, as we see literally the way Luke writes this. And this is a really big part of our church vision as well. If you're brand new to Hiawatha Church, or if you're not, let this remind you, but if you're brand new here, this is a really, really, really big deal for us. So if you're trying to figure out, is, is Hiawatha a place for me? Uh, understand, there's lots of things to understand about Hiawatha, but this is a biggie. This is our vision to glorify God, to make him famous by spreading the gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ in word especially, but also with our hands in deed form. And the key phrase here that fits with Acts 11 is, we want to do that among our church, among Christians first, and then out to our city, to those who are not saved yet and beyond as much as God provides the opportunity. All right, that's, that's our vision. This is not novel we're not trying to be sexy with this or kind of unique or new. Uh, novelty in the church is usually a bad sign. Uh, it usually means, in fact, the early church fathers thought that. Irenaeus is a great figure who lived actually before Tertullian, a little bit, kind of their kind of peers, but a little, a little earlier. But whenever someone called his writings novel, uh, he freaked out. He's like, I, that's the last thing I want to be called. If you want to call me anything, call me an old traditionalist. Novelty essentially means I'm wrong because there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's been revealed. Christ is here. There's no new message. There's no new gospel. And so at that juncture, um, people would kind of like deviate and kind of come back and go back to the drawing board, maybe re rephrase some things. But that's true for us as well. This is just biblical. This is not new. Most churches have a vision like this, or they should. And we're just, this is just the way we're wording it. There's lots of ways to word this. But, 
But anyway, what we want to do then is preach and demonstrate the gospel and all that we say and do for the sake of non-Christians, but also Christians. We want to work the yeast of the gospel into the dough of everything we are as a people and a community. That's what we want to do. And there's lots of ways that plays out, but here's five quick levels, just for the sake of clear applicability here, if, especially if you're new uh, or brand new to the faith, maybe, whether you call this church home or not. This is five big ways that we see this and a lot of churches do. And this is, I'll, really quickly, this is what I mean here. So on, on five levels, what it means to grow biblically after your conversion, spiritually, but also ecclesiologically, which just means to grow in and through the church by way of the church, but understand the importance of the church and how there's really no such thing as churchless Christianity. It's, a, it's kind of a, a fake version of the true thing. Five levels. One is the gathering level, so what we're doing right now is critically important for growth in the gospel. The class level, so adult education classes that we have here, including our internship programs and just the class offerings that we, we think the local church is uniquely positioned to train others that they actually know in the context of ministry to think and live biblically and to shape their heart with Christ-like character and, um, and to serve, actually serve Christ's bride and, and to love the church well. And so we have uh, classes that are given over to that many. Um, we have the group level, community groups, the personal level, mentoring, discipling, coaching, one-on-one or like one-on-two or one-on-three kind of relationships. And then the individual level, personal Bible reading, and prayer. So it kind of goes bit big, large, and it kind of gets a little smaller in scale as we go. But, but these are five things. And, and, and here's the thing. If you're a Christian, take Hiawatha out of the equation for a second. If you're a Christian, there's no good reason why you should not be involved in at least two or three of these. There's just no good excuse, no good reason. And I'm not saying that to make you feel the way, feel bad about not being involved in some of these things. I mean, we're all doing the first one right now. But to feel bad about that, uh, but to just feel invited into a better way of living as a Christian, a more exciting way to live as a Christian, to, to know this book really, really, really well. And the, the way to access like your feelings a bit more over Christianity is by way of this book, to hear God's voice in this and to know it better. The, the way to amplify your understanding of the gospel, it's all, the all-encompassing love of Jesus Christ and what he did for you is by way of this book. There's really no other way to do that, but not just the book, in community, because we are Christ to each other. We are the body of Jesus, as we talked about before. And so it's an invitation to think like Barnabas here. You know, is, is church so important? Is church as important to you as it was to Barnabas? Why didn't he just say these are actual, genuine conversions and you can't lose your salvation so why isn't it a better use of my time to go to the next city he doesn't say that he it, the, the answer is no it's not a better use of his time the better use is to stay with christians to ongoingly evangelize them and grow them up in the faith whether we're on the teaching side of that or the receiving or both uh are you are you receiving it are you on the teaching side are you on the receiving side are you a part of this on some level Consider this an invitation to change your way of thinking uh, to be more kind of holistically, holistically church-centered and not so individualistically. All right, second here, um, and more specifically, this I think is why Barnabas is called a good man. This kind of goes back to the song Highland and the band did, which asked a lot of these kind of deep existential questions about what it means to be good, and which I, 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 like, I loved it for that reason alone. But 
But this is why I think Barnabas is called a good man full of the Spirit. So let's just talk about this phrase here in verse 24 for a second. Could this be a general term about Barnabas' character? Sure, probably. I mean, for what we know about Barnabas and Acts, by all accounts, he was a kind, loving man that all of us would love to grab a beer with, probably. But this term good doesn't simply mean he was going to feed my starving children every other week. It's, it's not a strictly moralistic term here because good is modified here by his encouragement of the church. In other words, he was good because he cared for the church. He was full of the Spirit in how he loved the church. His goodness was expressed in helping to mature and to disciple other Christians. His spirit fullness was expressed in how he protected and cared for Christ's bride. And so here's what we extrapolate for this. This is not like an all-encompassing definition of goodness here, but this is what Acts 11 is saying. Goodness for the Christian is found in Jesus, expressed in spirit-filled living, though, that loves the church. So goodness for the, when we think about goodness, it's found in Jesus, expressed in spirit-filled living that actually loves the church. We say this a lot here, things like this. There's nothing wrong with humanitarianism, but this is more important for the Christian. When you think about how to spend your time and really what love is, when you, when you look at love in the Bible, how it's defined, how those one another's are used in the Bible, if you know what I'm talking about, if you've read the New Testament before, the one another's, we really kind of go all in on those. This is more important, and this is how goodness and being full of the Spirit is modified or truly defined. Loving the church, loving Christians you know, and sharing your lives with them. And so what a lot of Christians can sometimes get into is this pattern of thinking, well, I'm a Christian now. If I give 30 bucks to Compassion to uh, support a kid in Uganda, but then I never go to church because it's boring, um, we're not doing it right. That's not the right way to do it. Like, that's not enough. That's not sacrificial. That's not what this is getting at. That's actually, don't stop doing the, the whole compassion thing. That's great, but that's not what this is about. Do you know, do you know Christians? Do you love Christians? You, this is about local church. This is what it means to be good in Jesus' eyes. You know, first to believe in him, because as Jesus says, no one's good except God alone. Remember that? No one's good except God alone. Jesus says this. So what in the world's going on here? How can Barnabas be good? The only answer is if Jesus is alive in him, because Barnabas is not a good man just like you're not a good man or, or I or woman or whatever. None of us are, okay? So the, the idea is first, goodness is in Christ when we're full of the Holy Spirit of God. That's goodness, but then by extension, to love Jesus' bride. To believe in him and love his bride is what it means to be good and what it means to be full of the Spirit. Let's read the rest of this and we'll uh, spin off in that a little bit and talk some more. Acts eleven twenty seven to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there were, would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability in Antioch, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So on one level, this is, there's something different going on here, which I'll talk about in a second, but on one level, this is how the passage connects with what we just talked about. On one level, it's the same theme. Christians loving other Christians. Christians loving other Christians, in this case, by helping them out financially. So what's going on here is this prophet comes and says there's going to be this worldwide famine. The Gentile Christians in Antioch who have more money, upon news of the impending famine, realized that the Jerusalem church would have a harder time weathering it because they didn't have as much money. And so they sent financial aid by Barnabas and Saul. That's physically what's happening here is these richer Christians hear about the worldwide famine by way of this, this prophet Agabus, and they say we have poorer Christian brothers, some of whom we don't even know, but, but we're in the same family together. They're in trouble, and so we're going to send financial aid to them down in Jerusalem. And so, that, so they did. They sent it by, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That's how the section kind of is tied up with the bow here. That's physically, though, what's going on. But here's the thing. On a deeper level, this means a lot more. We, we call this in theology, sensus planure, which is a Latin phrase that means fuller meaning, and it's usually implied, it's used in theology uh, for the most part, but it usually means that there's, there's something going on here that God intends in the passage that the human author, in this case Luke, did not intend. So it usually is meant on a spiritual level. And with this passage, sometimes this passage, if you've read, about, read this passage maybe in a systematic theology textbook before. Some of you probably have. If you haven't, this is what you'll see sometimes. Is Sometimes this passage for people gets reduced to an argument over whether or not prophecy of this nature, the predictive kind, still exists. And so in other words, we'll, re- we'll be reading this passage like in a theology class or with friends or in a Bible, and we'll say, what does this mean for us? And it gets reduced, that question to mean it gets reduced to, well, does this happen today? Are there Agabuses still out there? Are there Agabuses still in our church? And that's all we do with it. Which, if you think about it, that's not a terrible question to ask. It's not a terrible question to debate or seek an answer to. But when we treat passages like this more like a theological story and less like a topical theological proof text, the issue becomes less about does prophecy exist or not on this level still today, And more the question of, what does the prophecy itself tell us about the gospel? That's the greater question. Knowing what questions to ask about the Bible or any biblical text changes everything. And we know what questions to ask based off of what questions it asks about itself in other places. So questions like, how does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament? Or how are smaller narratives exactly like this attempting to tell the story of the one larger narrative. What's the sensus planura here? What's the fuller meaning behind the more face value physical one? And when we do this, in Acts 11, phrases like great famine over the whole world start to pique our interest. See the emphasis difference here just right off the bat? All of a sudden, less we're asking the question about does prophecy still exist in this level or what is prophecy? Good questions. But when we back up and just kind of almost get permission from the rest of the Bible to ask better questions, this phrase, great famine over the whole world, seriously, start to pique our interest more and, um, 
and lead us then down different paths of meaning and implication for our lives. So here's the idea. The care given to the Jerusalem church by the Antiochians is given against the backdrop of an extreme worldwide famine, which then should make us think about what other types of extreme worldwide problems there are in the Bible and in our very lives. And when we do that, we remember, or learn for the first time, physical famine and spiritual famine are linked all over the place in the Bible. It's unavoidable. We might separate them, but in God's eyes and the authors of the Bible's eyes, they're linked all over the place. We even see Jesus talk about physical famines accompanying and preceding his death for us on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. And so, so basically, just coming full circle here for a second, what we're seeing here play out symbolically in Acts 11 is a picture of Jesus by way of his church caring for spiritually impoverished and impendingly famished people. So like the church gave money, sort of, so does Jesus give the riches of his grace. Remember in 2 Corinthians, this verse that's come up already in this series, 8-9, one of the best theological un- unpackings of Christian generosity, tying it to the gospel that you have in the whole New Testament. Paul, who's Saul here, also in this passage, but Saul later wrote this, he said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He actually writes this in context with gathering more money from Gentile Christians to keep sending to Jerusalem. So one of the major historical contexts for all the New Testament letters is what we're seeing here in Acts 11. Famine and the poorer Jerusalem church having a harder time weathering it. But anyway, in context then he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich spiritually, He can't be talking physically here because Jesus had no money. He was homeless. So rich is a spiritual term here. Though he was God, and in that way he was spiritually rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty, through his poverty, might become rich. So what he's saying here is he's speaking of the poverty of Jesus' death. So Christ was rich he condescended himself, he lowered himself, he, he spilt his blood, and through that kind of impoverished act on the cross, we became spiritually wealthy, which he must be talking about because the Jerusalem Christians are dirt poor, and many of the Gentile ones are as well, and many of us are maybe are in this room. And so this is not a promise of physical wealth. It's a promise of spiritual wealth, the, the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1 talks about. This is crucial to see, or we'll have very bad theology and expectations about what it means to be saved, what God actually came to do, and what's going to happen after we believe. If we misread this, we'll expect money to show up in our mailbox every day. And we'll, we'll start thinking that God owes me something. Look, I, I believed in what you said. I trust you for, for what you did. Now, wh- what else do I get? As if deliverance from the clutches of hell for eternity isn't enough. All right, with that backbone and that foundation set up, then phrases like this, according to his ability, mean more to us than simply what each could afford. And the lesson here is not simply copy the Antiochians here, though there's something to say about that later. That's not the lesson, though. 
on a senseless planure level, the lesson is, in pointing us to Christ, it means then that Jesus gave according to his ability as well. This is why affirming that the deity of Christ is so important. Jesus wasn't just a man. He was the Son of God who, according to his divine power, what he could afford as the Son of God, which was everything, so what he could afford on that level, saved us from our sins. So think about it this way. The Antioch Christians gave some money according to their ability, but Christ gave salvific riches to billions of people when he died on the cross. Spiritual wealth that saves us from the famine of sin and death and separation from God, according to his strong, never-failing, better-than-anything-else-you've-ever-experienced-in-your-life ability. That's what this means. And furthermore, if this is what it means, and it is, then, then the phrase worldwide sin, or sorry, worldwide famine, informs our understanding of sin, right? So if sin is worldwide, if famine, here's a picture of spiritual famine, and then if, if we extrapolate that sin then is worldwide in scope, then we really need this kind of savior. That's where Agabus's prophecy becomes so theologically important. It's, it's important for many reasons, but this is where it's dialed up to 11 here. It's so theologically important. This wasn't a three-week drought. This was a worldwide famine. So just like then, sin is not saying, yeah, nobody's perfect, but rather, we're all rotting corpses in tombs, spitting in the face of the best king who's ever lived. That's worldwide famine definition of sin stuff. Not three-week drought kind definition of sin stuff. Worldwide famine de- definition of sin stuff. If you look at um, Elith and I, my wife and I are reading through Jeremiah right now, the prophet in the Old Testament, and we're, we're coming across this theme of false prophets a lot in the book. It's been on our mind a lot, been on my mind a lot because of this. And so it, it was helpful for me to have that background reading Acts 11 because if you look at the theme of false prophets, so liars, uh, posers, false prophets in the Old Testament, for example, in Jeremiah, their main characteristic The main characteristic of false prophets in the Bible is making things not seem as bad as they are. The main characteristic of false prophet liars in the Bible is making things not seem as bad as they really are, which you might say, isn't the gospel good news? I'd say, amen, it is. On the gospel side of things, that's a different story. But we're talking about on the sin side of things, how bad we are in our sins, that that can get handled well or can, can get handled poorly. Right? by prophets, by teachers, by any of you as you and me as we unpack what the truth is. We can be good at that or bad, true or false. False prophets are constantly saying to God's people, I know Jeremiah is saying that you're going to be in exile for 70 years and things are really bad and you're going to be led away and your family's going to be torn apart because of your sin and all this stuff, but guess what, guys? He's wrong. It's only going to be two years. This is literally what he says. You know, like, it's only going to be a couple of years. You know, so people are probably thinking between those two prophets, I think I'm going to take the other guy, you know, like, I hope he's right. And I'm just going to say he is. I, I can sleep better at night. So I'm just going to assume that he speaks for God. But the whole time, God is against these false prophets because they're misrepresenting him. So in the same way, back to Acts 11, when we, when we 
read a passage like this, we might think even, I don't know if you guys thought this when you read it or not, but you might think, really? Worldwide famine? Does that even happen? Was it really that bad? Which isn't far from saying, really? Is sin that bad? Is God's wrath really coming? Things seem kind of fine. Do I really have that big of spiritual need? Physical famine came along in the first century to accompany spiritual famine, to show physical and spiritual need, to help sinners understand how bad things were. If it's worldwide, you know, we can't just say, oh, I'll move, I'll move to the next state. If all of Minnesota is having a famine, we can't all just move to Iowa or I'll move to Illinois. We can't, we can't just say it. If it's worldwide, right? And, and same, same in the original context. If it's worldwide, they can't just say, well, we'll move down to Judea or we'll move over to Asia Minor somewhere, closer to Greece. Like, they, they couldn't just say that. There's nothing they could do. In the same way, we can't say, oh, things aren't that great, I have sin. Well, then I'll just do a few good things to tip the scales. I'll do some moral things. I'll be a better person. We can't say that because your sin is global. That's what this is saying. And mine is. It's worldwide. You can't fix it. No matter how hard you try. You could be perfect morally from this day on. And you would still be just as hellbound. That's the message of the Bible and God's message. This is the true prophets say this. False prophets don't. The false prophets of today they're all over, right? Say, you're a good person. Just try harder. God will love you more if you just do this. And it's okay. Everything's going to be okay if you just live a better life. That is, those people are the worst figures in the Bible, and they exist today. How are we going to know which, what's right, right, and what's true? The only way is from the Bible. And even from passages like this, in this indirect way, it can show us that sin is global, sin is worldwide. Sin is unsolvable by you and me. It's not solvable. We can't just do a few good things. We can't even do a billion good things and that be enough, as if that were even possible. It's not by what you do, but by what God gives you through Jesus that you're saved. This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of famine passages. This is the message of, this is what Acts 11 does in this interesting way here, actually. Acts 11 has this interesting way of giving us the really bad news, yet holding out hope for us at the same time in symbolic ways. And, and, and that is this. The bad news of the worldwide famine of sin juxtaposed to the hope of the generosity of Jesus Christ embodied in the church at Antioch, which was not a grace that the Antiochians waited for the Jerusalemites to earn through their good works, but a grace that they gave freely when they heard of their need. That's the, that's the gospel juxtaposition, the, the, the bad and the good news that we need to understand and believe in is the famine's real. And it's not physical. It actually, it's right here in our heart. And it's wrapped around your, your DNA like a, just like a tight string. You can't get it off. Juxtaposed to what we're seeing through Barnabas and the Antioch church, did the Antiochians wait for the, Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians to get their act together and to be good, to give them money? Did they do that? Obviously not, right, from this passage. It's the opposite. Then why do we think that God will pay us when we do good? 
Or on the flip side, why do we think then that if these people, Antioch people, who are bad people, they're Christians, but they're still evil like us to the core, if they're doing this good work based on grace, how much more will God show grace to those who ask him? The gospel says he's, God's not waiting for us to get our life together. He's waiting for us to simply cry out and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, an impoverished, famine-ridden wretch, like we sang out before. When you do that, God always answers yes. And he can't wait to do it. But if, if we don't do that, and if our good works keep us from saying that, because, oh, the famine's not that bad. Am I really a wretch? I hate Amazing Grace because I don't like singing the song, the word wretch. I actually knew a person once personally who, not, not here. You guys don't know who this person is. I'm not calling one of you out here. Uh, but, but knew someone personally that did, didn't, never sung that hymn because he couldn't handle calling himself a wretch. Okay, that, that's like exactly what's going on here. What prophets do you listen to? Who tells the truth? Right? This is pretty stinking amazing news, guys if this is true. Do you believe it? This is amazing grace that God offers us today, right now in this very room. If you realize the sheer unsolvable problem of the famine in your soul, and you cling to the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the riches of his grace, the famine-solving love, then you will be saved, and Christian, ongoingly so, if you continue to cling to that anchor and that life raft, really, in the middle of the ocean that we're all in. So we pray for us, and we'll close.